This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. Now today we have eight questions. So without further ado, let's just jump right in. And question number one says, hi Katie, how do I know if a certain pain is related to trauma? Could pain be a body memory? What exactly is a body memory? And can it also exist when you don't have other memories? I'm also wondering about the difference between a flashback and an intrusive thought. I'm having so many questions and confusion about the correlation of physical pain and trauma. We'll be very grateful for your insight and your thoughts. Thanks for sharing so much helpful information every week and for your time. Your podcast is a great resource. Of course, happy to do it. Okay, so many good questions here. Let's start at the top. How do I know if a certain pain is related to trauma? Now, if we're talking and I don't mean this in a minimizing way, but more in a teasing it out kind of way, is the pain something that kind of comes and goes with triggers? Or is the pain an actual physical manifestation of something that's currently occurring either like outside or inside your body? Does that make sense? Because what I'm trying to kind of tease out here is, is the pain that you're experiencing something that kind of comes and goes with certain external you know, stimuli, or is it something that's happening in you, again, not stimulated by like a memory or anything like that? That's how I would tease out of pain is pain and you should you should always get it checked out by the doctor, of course, always first, because we want to make sure there's no organic cause. What I mean by or- an organic cause, I don't know why that's hard for me to say, is we don't want something to actually be happening in our body, meaning let's say part of our pain that we're experiencing, we think could be related to trauma, but it's really because we have a bladder infection or we have, you know, a sprained ankle. We want to get things checked out to make sure that, that, that there's not another reason for it. And if there isn't another reason for it and we find the pain kind of comes up with certain stimuli and certain things happening to us, then that definitely could be related to trauma. Now, the could pain be a body memory? 100%. A lot of my patients who have body memories will tell me that they have, they'll feel like it's happening to them, to them again. Like let's say someone came up behind them and grabbed them from on their like biceps or shoulders and pulled them back. will feel pain in the areas where that person did that. And so that can be a body memory. Some of our pain can be connected to the trauma that we experienced and we'll actually feel the sensations of the trauma occurring again. And it's usually during a flashback, but it can happen on its own also. Now, What exactly is a body memory? A body memory is essentially cellular memory. It is the fact that our, that's why I love, if you have not read the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, I cannot encourage you to do it enough. But what The Body Keeps the Score, even just the title, what that really means is that we have cellular memory of things that occurred to us, to our physical self, and it manifests in memories of those sensations. Almost like if you close your eyes and you imagine that someone's like massaging your hand, can you like feel it even though it's not happening? Or if you have a memory of walking in cold grass in the morning as a kid, can you close your eyes and can you feel that? Now that feeling, the sensation, the memory of the sensation itself is kind of akin to what a body memory is. It's not currently happening to our physical self, but our cells in our body recall what it felt like and can recreate that experience for us. So it feels like it's happening again. So that hopefully explains what a body memory is. And can it also exist when you don't have other memories? 100%. A ton of my patients won't have any memory of their 
actual trauma happening, but they'll have the experience in their body. Or some people have some combination of both, or depending on what part of the memory, we might have, you know, flashes of the actual memory and then some body sensations. So it really runs the gamut just depending on how you personally have experienced it and how you've moved into the future with PTSD and what symptoms come up for you with regard to that. So each person is going to have their own kind of manifestation of that. Now, the last part of this question says, I'm wondering about the difference between a flashback and an intrusive thought. Now, a flashback is when we, it's like what it sounds like, when we flash back to an experience that happened to us previously, it feels like it's happening again. Now, a flashback can be like, we feel like we're there and it's like running, playing out like a movie and we're in it again, or it can feel like we're flashing through like a photo album or just these random still images, but it's always flashing back to a previous experience. On the other hand, an intrusive thought is something that pops into our head. It's usually linked to anxiety or OCD, but not always. Now, intrusive thought is something that is usually what we call ego dystonic, meaning we don't like it. It doesn't feel good. We, it usually is sexual or violent in nature. So even just the sheer thought, you're like, oh, it just feels like it goes against who we believe we are. And these intrusive thoughts can be things like, I could just jump off this bridge right now. Why don't I just run that person over? I could totally have sex with that person. I can imagine what that would be like. Like things, And then you're like, ooh, immediately. That ego dystonic is a really key piece. Now, obviously, flashbacks don't feel good, but we're flashing back to something that happened, whereas intrusive thoughts are things that didn't happen or aren't going to happen, but our brain just flashes into them. And again, I forget the percentage, but more than 50% of the time, they tend to be violent or sexual in nature. Why? We don't really know, but that's just kind of the the basis or the foundation of what an intrusive thought is. Okay, I hope that, that helps and kind of clears things out. I know trauma stuff can be completely confusing and we can feel overwhelmed by it, but hopefully that just gives you a little bit more clarity. Now let's move on to question number two. Question number two says, Hello, Katie. Hello. Says, I hope you're doing well and that you had a relaxing vacation. I did. If you didn't know, Sean and I went to Bend, Oregon a few weeks ago. Oh, it was beautiful. I was like, we should move here. This is amazing. I've heard people say that someone can be unhappy or depressed without realizing it. We'll get into this. And I've I've seen it happen. I was wondering if that can happen in the reverse. Not until five or so years ago did I realize that I have depression. So I was wondering if people can also be happy and not know it. I find myself missing times in my life when I didn't think I was happy while I was living in that time, if that makes sense. I feel like I've been depressed for so long. I don't remember a time that I was genuinely happy, but maybe there were times I don't realize that I was actually happy. And this makes it hard to know what changes in my life I could do to make my life better and what I could be doing to at least make steps towards making a life better, making my life better. Sorry. Thank you if you're able to answer my question for creating this podcast. It's one of my favorites, of course. Okay, a couple things. Now, people can be depressed or unhappy and not realize it, essentially because of what I would call like the baseline phenomenon. Now, what I mean by the baseline phenomenon is our baseline of experience. So let's say if each and every day I tend to feel like this amount of happiness, let's say it's like a, a six out of 10, pretty good, right? I'm a six out of 10. So I'm running here for so long that if I, let's say, dip down to a four and then go back to a six, I might not even notice a six. A six becomes just blah, just the huge, right? When things are usual to our brain, it's just comfortable and it's fine. And it's almost, just hang with me, it's almost akin to when uh, crimes happen in a city or even anywhere, and they go and ask people who witnessed it. Witness statements are so unreliable because it depends on what was different for that person. Because they'll often ask people like, hey, did you notice anything weird? And they're like, no, I didn't notice anything weird. But it's a better a better question is to say, did you notice? What did you notice? What was kind of normal today? Can you walk me through what you saw? Because when things are just baseline, just normal, we often just don't notice them. Like, oh yeah, I saw a mailman and he was really struggling with that bin, but like whatever. Like things that just don't seem like anomal- anomalies, we just gloss over. And so really when stuff happens, usually people, eyewitnesses have more information than they realize. 
the things that they saw just weren't completely weird or out of the norm. And so they didn't really log them away. And so the reason I bring that up is because when we're talking about this baseline phenomenon, if in our life, our baseline is always depressed and we've been depressed for a really, really, really long time, we often don't even know what it's like to be happy or remember that feeling. And it can go both ways. If we've if we've been happy for a really, really, really long time, we might not remember the experience of being depressed. And that's really why we can be one or the other for a while and not notice it. Frankly, because you know, we can kind of like shift out of a gear and we go into this thing and we just don't even, it becomes like, oh, this is just our norm. Maybe at the beginning, we might realize the shift, but as it continues, it becomes like a whatever. I hope that makes sense. So that's kind of why some people can be unhappy or depressed without realizing it. Maybe they've been depressed for such a long period, they like don't notice it anymore. I I do think that there is a period at the beginning of a shift in mood where we all notice it. When we start to feel better, when we start to feel worse. Like for instance, a lot of my patients when they're in a str- like struggling in the midst of a depressive episode and they go on medication that works for them, they pull out of it. And then about a year later, they're like, you know what? I just don't even think I need therapy or medication anymore. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. okay. So therapy, you know, if, if we feel like we work through everything, that might be fine. But when it comes to medication, that might be the reason that you are happy. And so we should be careful as we titrate down to notice if those symptoms come back, right? We almost forget where we were and how we got there, right? We just like, that's just our baseline. So I say all of that to kind of help, hopefully help explain why we can be unhappy or depressed and not really realize it, or why we can be happy and not really realize it. Now, an important piece when it comes to happiness and understanding like what makes us happy or striving for happiness, if we go looking for it and wanting to be happier, I want to be happier. I'm going to do everything, try to be happier. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What we end up doing is actually feeling worse because by going out and seeking happiness, we instead every day are reminding ourselves that we don't have it yet. It's like every day if you woke up and you're like, I'm going to make more money, I'm going to make a million dollars, I'm going to make a million dollars. You remind yourself, I don't have enough money, I don't have that million dollars that I need. And so you're, without realizing it, kind of affirming a negative belief or a, a lack of something. Okay? So what we should do is instead of going out and seeking it, we should do things that feel fulfilling for us. So like things like um, spiritual connection, if religion wants to be, if you want to be part of your life or some spirituality, that can be really key. We can also have like engagement with other people, real connection with other people and relationship building. We can do something we're good at. We call that building mastery. And it's like learning a new task or getting better at a task that we already do. There's some things that we can do to just overall improve our mood. Also getting sunshine on your face for 15 minutes. When you first get out of bed, you got to get outside that can help. There's a ton of things that we can do to improve our mood without seeking out that happiness. Okay. Now let's see. Um, I think I answered all the questions, but let's just check. Um, it, one of the other questions says, I was genuinely happy, but maybe there were times I didn't realize I was actually, oh, gotcha. Talking about when they were younger, right? I feel like I've been depressed for so long. I don't remember a time when I was genuinely happy. That's incredibly common because our working memory is usually only a certain chunk of time. I would argue maybe like a five-year window of like ease of recall of working memory. And as we go into more long-term memory, and I'm probably off with that five years. I'm just thinking personally what I can recall with more clarity tends to be in the last like five years. And then as I dig back farther and farther, we get into long-term memory and it becomes harder. Now, if you've been depressed for such a long period of time, 
it is possible that your working memory doesn't recall. And even if you try to dig into your long-term, you're like, I don't even know if I was because it's too far removed. We don't have that like tangible touch on it. And so instead of seeking to figure out if there was ever a time when you were happy, how about instead we spend some time pretending that you're telling me, like journal, as if you're telling me what happiness would feel like. Like, let's say, we're going to use the miracle question, you guys know I love this. Let's say you wake up tomorrow and you're happy and you no longer have depression. How would you know? Tell me how it would feel different. How would your life be different? Tell me all about it. That can sometimes help us see what our goal is and give us more, maybe like more of a a roadmap to that change. Okay? Give that a try. Let's move on to question number three. Question number three says, Katie, in one of your videos, you mentioned that medication should not be needed forever. How do I know that it's time for me to get off my meds? I asked my doctor about getting off meds and she politely told me it's something I'll I'll need to take forever. Okay, now some medications do need to be taken forever. Like just when it comes to diagnoses, some mental illnesses need more consistent treatment. Those would be things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, really intense depression, what I'd call like treatment-resistant depression or TRMDD. Um, I could even say, I'm trying to think of others, but there's probably a ton of different things that you would need treatment for. Let's say borderline personality disorder. Now, there's not like a pill for that, but I know that mood stabilizers, I have patients that have mood stabilizers and atypical antipsychotics that have been proven to assist them with their symptoms. So things that are more pervasive in our life, we may need to continue taking medication just like we might need to continue taking medication to manage our blood pressure or our diabetes or any kind of medication we might take to deal with our eczema. If our brain and body can't operate without the assistance of it and things kind of go awry, right? We don't feel like ourselves. Maybe we get more depressed, more anxious, We find ourselves more reactive. We see and hear things that aren't there. We fall into a depressive or a manic episode. If we can't hold ourselves steady in in a space that is good for us and allows us to function in our life, then we might need to be on the medication more long term. Now, forever, that's between you and your doctor. I don't want to say like forever, but don't think that you, that all medications aren't needed. Like that I must maybe... I want to take back what I said, and I'm sorry if that wasn't clear, but sometimes for a lot of people, you don't have to take an antidepressant forever. Like many of my patients will go on and off things as the symptoms kind of build up, meaning that let's say I have a patient with generalized anxiety disorder, and it got to the point where they couldn't do their job. They were too anxious. They couldn't focus. They couldn't give presentations, be on calls with clients. Like things were just, it was too much, overwhelmed. Now, they go on to, let's say, an SSRI or an SNRI with, you know, their psychiatrist prescribes it and oversees it, and they start to do better. Then maybe a year into it, they're like, you know, I'd kind of like to see if I can go without. And we titrate down, the symptoms just don't come back yet. And then they go off it for, for a while or forever. I've had patients not need it after using it for a little while, but I've also had patients who you know, go on and off kind of every couple of years, just as things flare up, because we know life is unpredictable and it can be stressful and things, situations can change. And unfortunately, sometimes that means that our symptoms come back. Not always, but sometimes. So everybody's situation is going to be different, but don't think that going on a medication means you have to be on it forever automatically, or that being on a medication means you need to get off of it. Talk to your doctor, talk to your therapist, be honest about where you're at and what you're experiencing and you know use those appointments with your psychiatrist or whatever per- prescribing doctor you have to let them know how you're feeling and if you want to ever try to go off you know you should consider that talk to your doctor and if they agree then you can start titrating and see how you do but if it's holding you and it feels good and you end up you know improving and if you titrate down those symptoms come back then it might be something you need to stay on and there's no shame in any of it's all up to you your body and the relationship that you have with your doctor and making sure that you feel good about the medication that you're on for however long you need it okay okay now also as a side note i just want to throw out there that there was a new drug that was 
approved for the treatment of postpartum depression. And I know that this company, I believe it's like the pharmaceutical company Sage or something like that. They are hoping to also get more indications, not just for postpartum, but for depression as a whole. And this medication is crazy because you only have to take it for 14 days. Um, they And then you don't have to take it anymore. Isn't that wild? And so it's called Zerzui, I think. It's Z-U-R-Z-U-V-A-E. Oh, or Zerzuvi. And anyways, it's the first oral medication indicated to treat postpartum depression in adults. And this was six days ago as I'm recording this um, to be approved. And that's pretty cool. So we'll see. It's a different type of medication. It works differently than other ones. I've tried to read up as much about it as I can. Not, I'm not a doctor, but I think it's important to know that there are other medications always out there. If one isn't working for you, please let them know and you know tell them what's not working or the symptoms that you're experiencing so they can find something that fits your needs. Okay? Moving on to question number four. This question says, hi, Katie. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, I am currently in therapy to process trauma with my ex. My ex was physically, emotionally, and sexually abusive, and the, la- the latter of which has been even more difficult to grapple with due to my faith and my perspective on sex. I struggle to believe that things were not my fault, and I feel that I don't deserve to say it was abuse and assault. I feel angry with myself, but not my ex. I used to not be able to say the terms sexual abuse or rape at all, and now I can but I always go numb when talking about it in therapy. I know my brain protected me from scary situations with my ex by shutting down, and I think I must do this in therapy. I suck at even making eye contact with my therapist, and this helps me to disconnect from the things that I'm talking about, but he keeps saying that I won't fully process things until I feel them. Hmm. How do I let myself feel the reality of having been assaulted and abused by my ex and not be totally destroyed by that? I struggle to let myself cry in therapy and I don't know how to release those emotions without them turning, um, oh, turning in on myself. Okay, this answer might surprise you and we have a comment on this as well, but I don't believe that the work you need to do is necessarily in the talking about it just yet. And the reason that I say that is because there's some old beliefs in here. In your entire question, there are things like, I struggle to believe that things were not my fault. I feel that I don't deserve to say it was abuse and assault. And I feel destroyed by it. And I turn all of it on to myself. Okay. So all of that tells me that not just this relationship, but some previous probably from your parents or some other romantic relationship you've had that was really impactful or something has somehow led you to believe those things about yourself and the situation, meaning that you believe that everything is your fault and that you don't deserve any help maybe to actually call things what they were. You minimize and invalidate and shame yourself. So obviously this is traumatic and that is a trauma response, shame, minimization, you know, invalidation, guilt, embarrassment, all of that is kind of like, you know, perfect storm of PTSD symptoms. But I wouldn't be surprised if this hasn't happened to you before in a similar situation, if there isn't previous trauma. And so my first step with you, well, I guess I'll give you my first two steps. First is to do some internal research about where and when you've thought or felt these similar things before. Remember, these things are that it was my fault, that I don't deserve to say it was abuse and assault, and that I struggled, you know, I have to turn it in on myself. So I can't feel, I can't release the emotions unless I like punish myself with them. So when have we found this coming up again? Has this happened before? Be curious. I'm curious about that. Let's be a little detective. Let's journal a little bit, do some just like thinking on your own. If you find it extremely triggering, do it before a therapy session, maybe even get to the office a little early and think about it in the waiting room or do it in your car on your way there, or maybe the day before, just to make sure you have some support lined up or tell your therapist you want to talk through that and you want to try to figure that out and you can do that kind of research in therapy. So that's the first thing. Then the second is this disconnection that you're experiencing means that we don't have enough 
resources, what we call them, but they're really like coping skills or grounding techniques that we can use to keep ourselves present. Because we're not going to be able to talk about things, feel anything, do any of the work if we can't be present during it. Because even if we push through and we're like dissociated talking about it, that's not going to help us process it. Because in order to process something and to move through it, we have to be inside our body. I know it's uncomfortable, but in order to do that, we're going to have to maybe do like a body shake. Maybe we do some breathing exercises. I was just watching Huberman Lab the other day or watching slash listening. And he was saying that when we do a double inhale, so we go at the top, we do that last little and then we breathe out really slow. What that does is it inflates all of the little bags in our lungs because our lungs obviously are like those two bags we see on x-rays and stuff like that. Um, But they're also filled with all these little balloons. They're supposed to fill with air, these little bags. And when we get anxious or stressed, we don't fill them up all the way. And that kind of lack of oxygen causes our system to feel even more overwhelmed. And so when we fill up all those bags and we do that last little, and then we breathe out slow, it not only gives our body and brain more oxygen, but it also like encourages more carbon dioxide output, which is soothing to our nervous system. Amazing. So that could be something that you do. And that's kind of why breathing exercises might work, even though I know they're annoying. We might need to have some distraction techniques like petting a dog, going for a walk, um, watching some TV show for a little bit. Um, I don't know, making dinner, doing something repetitive can be helpful too, like folding laundry and like the walking can be really repetitive. Uh, Vacuuming can be repetitive, all sorts of things like that. Um, That could be helpful, but try some of those things out. I have an entire video called 25 Coping Skills. You can check it out. The comments are filled with others that work for people, but give that a try because what we need to do is we need to get you to a place where you feel like you, as you become overwhelmed, you're aware and you feel it creeping up and you can utilize those coping skills to bring you back so you can stay inside yourself so you don't feel like you're disconnecting from everything. That's going to be the first like big step because we can't just start going to talk about things. You can't stay present. So of course your therapist is like, well, if you're not there and you can't feel them, it's not going to help. And they're not wrong, but we need to help you get to a place where you can do that. Does that make sense? I hope so. And there was a comment on this as, as an Adam, my therapist also tells me that I need to be comfortable with my thoughts and share my experiences. But I struggle to make eye contact and to talk about childhood sexual abuse because I'm afraid of being re-traumatized. Vulnerability hangover, I understand that, and feeling ashamed makes it too tough to open up. My previous therapist was a male, and I realized that the gender of my therapist also made it difficult to open up. It can. So remember, picking out a therapist is not a time to be PC. Pick somebody who is comfortable for you. If that means they need to be the same gender as you or around the same age or older, younger, same religion, same color of skin, whatever it is, make sure that they feel comfortable for you because that can really shift how how able we are to open up and be vulnerable when we need to. Okay. Last week, I took a session with a female therapist and I was able to talk about certain concerning symptoms and experiences slightly better. Yay. I'm still, or I still struggle to use certain terms and reading about uh, female physiology or learning about safe sex makes me go dizzy and makes me have some body memories. How do I open up in this regard? Kindly help. Again, going back to what I just shared, I really think that that's the key is being able to calm our system down because there's, I wish there was a magic pill or a magic tool that I could tell you is like, this will take away all of the overwhelm or the, the nervous system dysregulation that comes along with sharing a trauma, but there isn't anything like that. All we can do is prepare ourselves better before and during those kinds of conversations. It's just having those coping skills that we can do before, like maybe make sure we drink enough water, we get enough sleep, we can talk basic self-care stuff, take our medication as prescribed, eat a meal, all of those things, move our body, get sun on our face, can do those things, have a shower. And then during it, maybe it's a full body shake, maybe we do some of that breathing, that maybe that means we have a fidget toy or putty that we work with, or maybe we have a signal we give our therapist when we start to feel it ramp up, we like put our hand up and they change the subject, any number of things, but we're going to have to work on that. And so check out my video, talk to your therapist about it, tell them, you know, that like you're struggling to open up and you feel like 
you just get too dysregulated. You need more resources, coping skills, whatever you want to call them. We need to have those in place so that we can we are able to keep going. Okay? Hang in there. It does get better. It does get slowly easier. But I hate to say it, but it's it's always uncomfortable. We're always talking about something that's uncomfortable, but we won't become as dysregulated. So the discomfort level starts at like 100% and it slowly goes down. Okay? So hang in there. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hi, Katie, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. This is a slightly different question, but I wondered what your thoughts were on gut feelings about people. I usually get a gut feeling about someone pretty much instantly on meeting them, whether they're inherently good or bad. Not bad like this is an awful person who I don't want anything to do with, but more just something feels off about them and I don't like it. Or if someone is good, then they're really kind, genuine person who you could trust and you want to spend time with. The thing is, these gut feelings are generally correct. And the times I've ignored them, that person has gone on to hurt me or someone that I'm really close to. But I'm torn between this and at the same time, not knowing that person at all and feeling the need to give them a chance. The worst thing we can do is go against our gut reactions. Now, when we talk about gut feelings, it's really our nervous system and our I call it almost like our subconscious, but I don't want it to sound too woo-woo. It's more like we pick up, I know people use the term vibes, and it's not really a clinical term, but especially if we grew up in a home where a parent was unpredictable, we're incredibly good at reading the energy of a room or the vibes. And we've all, we all are kind of cued into that. If we're present in our bodies, we're able to read that room. Because for many reasons, it obviously behooves us if we grew up in a home that was really tumultuous and unpredictable, because the more we knew, then the more we'd be like, oh, okay, avoid mom, or okay, act perfectly and do these things, or, you know, we could change our behavior accordingly. But in life, it helps us because it gets us out of bad situations, you know? It's like if you walked into a room, it's like a party at someone's house, and you're like, I've had this happen when I was in high school and even in college more in college than high school, but I'd go to a party and I'd be like, it just felt off. And I was like, I can't stay here. Um, Usually my friends would be like, yeah, I showed up later. People are doing a lot of drugs. And I didn't grow up with that. And I don't, you guys know, I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. Never been interested, no judgments on anybody, but nope. And so that stuff would give me the heebie-jeebies and I couldn't really explain it. It was just that gut reaction. And we all have that in us. We can feel the vibes, if you want to call it, or the energy of a room. And I firmly believe that we should trust them because here's what I do know. Now, when we are traumatized and something happens to us, especially when we're growing up, but honestly, anytime, and we thought that person was good or we gave them a chance and they harmed us and we're traumatized by it, because we're hypervigilant, often as a result of a trauma, kind of part of our PTSD, if we're hypervigilant, it means that we think everything's a threat and that can make slowly erode our trust in our gut reaction because we're like, well, that was just like an old lady and I like ran away. I got super scared. And we can start to like judge that and not feel like we can trust it. And that is a super, super dangerous place to be in because then what we do is we ask other people or follow other people's leads when it comes to things like that. And we just, we disconnect from our gut reactions. And that's when we put ourselves in more harmful positions. That's honestly, when I was doing research for my book, Traumatized, I talked a lot about this, like, because so many of my patients and members of our community will reach out and be like, why do I keep being traumatized? Like, holy shit, why does this keep happening? Do I have like a sign on my back that's like, please hurt me? It's because of that lack of trust in our gut feelings. And so trust your gut reactions. If people can prove through other behaviors that don't have anything to do with you, right? People can change. Our gut reactions can be off, but they're going to have to show us another example. If on first meeting, you're like, I just don't really like that person or I don't vibe with them well, or they seem kind of off. Trust your gut. It doesn't mean you're like, never see you again. But if they're like around in other situations, you're like, oh, I guess they aren't so bad. You know, you can change your opinion, but I will also be honest that I'm pretty good at judging people as well. And I should have trusted my gut, just like you. The ones that went against me, that I I went against myself, I mean, to spend more time with them, always end up being like really unhealthy, tumultuous, or hurtful relationships, or people who try to take advantage. I've run into a lot of people on YouTube like that. So 
just I trust them and you can gain your gut back if you're one of those traumatized people who's hypervigilant you're like I don't even know how to do that talk to your therapist a therapist is a good person to start off as as your external gauge to help you recultivate your own and little by little you you check in with them I think I'm going to do this and if they're like yep that sounds like a good choice you know you start to gain more confidence in yourself and in your gut reactions and we can slowly get that back okay Moving on to question number six. This question says, Katie, how do you heal from codependency? Not sure if there's already a video about this. I do have videos on codependence or codependency. You can look them up on YouTube and there's probably more information about what it is and why it happens and stuff like that. I might get into the healing. I don't really remember, but I do have them. You can check that out. It says, I have lost several close relationships this year due to my codependency. And now I'm all alone. Now, codependence is most often brought up when it comes to addiction. Remember, I've I've talked about this in the past, but one of my favorite ways to explain codependency is that one member of the relationship has an addiction. Remember, addiction can be a lot of different things, right? It's not just drugs or alcohol, it can be, but it could be shopping, could be gambling, could be sex, could be any number of things. So one member of that couple has an addiction and the other person's addiction is that person. And what this means is, or another way of explaining, it, I guess, is like codependence. We're dependent upon each other, meaning that the person who has the addiction needs this other person to survive, probably because they make sure that their bills get paid, that they get to work or school on time, that their clothes are washed, that they're fed, like all sorts of stuff. Maybe that they even have money and a roof over their head. So they need that person to sustain their lifestyle because if they have an addiction, it's usually a little bit out of control, if not a lot out of control. And this person who's doing all that needs to be needed and feels like it's kind of part of their personality or who they are to be like a caretaker or I'm the one who does things. I get things, you know, they they can shoulder a lot of that because that's how they feel they're valued, okay, or worthy of a relationship. Now, in order to heal, we have to recognize where this is showing up in our lives, how is it manifesting for you? How does your codependency relate to your definition of yourself, right? We're going to have to build up our confidence. That's going to be a huge piece. And I actually encourage you to be alone for a little while. And there's also um, Codependence Anonymous is a great resource. It's a group therapy, obviously. It's like AA or NA or Al-Anon. Codependence Anonymous, they have free meetings everywhere. It could be a great way for you to start to understand your relationship pattern and how to break it. Because really, in essence, and I'm just going to kind of give you a rundown because everybody's situation is going to be different. Codependency looks different, obviously, person to person. But if we force ourselves, we're the codependent person, to be single and to not engage in relationships that trigger that, then it's easier. We can do it the other way, but it's easier this way. We can see where we can like look back on our old relationships, see how it showed up and question the story we tell ourselves about it. And then we're going to have to do some like opposite action, meaning that let's say I believe that I'm only valuable if I offer more to the relationship or I feel that it's my role or my job to always be the responsible one. Or if I please other people first, then I don't feel so worried they're going to leave me or I don't feel as anxious, right? All of these like unhealthy behaviors that we do are really just ways that we try to soothe. We try to feel better. We just don't have the tools to do it healthily. And so in this situation, my encouragement for you, again, would be to try to figure out how it's applying to your life. If you can, stay. you said you're all alone. I know that can be really triggering, because your values placed in being in relationships. Codependent people tend to swing from one to the next and never are alone. As icky as it feels, it's probably very healthy for you. Let's take that opportunity to do some of this internal work. Let's figure out how it shows up for us. Figure this out the stories that we're telling ourselves. And then opposite action is going to be your friend. So as we re-engage with relationships, whether they be romantic or friends or family, codependency is very pervasive. It's in all of our relationships usually. I want you when you're thinking, oh, I'll just take care of all that for them. That'll that'll be better. They'll feel better about that. I want you to stop yourself. I want you to recognize because we, we were aware of our pattern, right? I want you to say, you know what? 
it's actually a lot of work for me. They can do this half, I'll do this portion, okay? Or, you know what, I'm just gonna offer to do, did they ask for it? Are we able to give it? Is it easy for us to give it? Is it gonna take from us? Are we putting ourselves out to put somebody else first? You know, we're gonna have to check in on that stuff because people who are codependent tend to put everybody else's needs before their own. And so boundaries are gonna be a piece of this. It's gonna take some time and some work. I really encourage you to get into therapy. If you can't afford that, Codependence Anonymous is a great place to start. You can even probably look up resources of theirs online, but that's kind of how we work our way out. We have to act in a different way. Otherwise, we'll continue the same pattern and cycle, but we have to recognize our pattern. We can't just get rid of something before we realize like what purpose it serves. So I hope that, I know it's a lot, but codependent a healing from that is a lot. It's It's a huge piece of the puzzle of your therapeutic work. And so we're going to have to take our time as we break it up and work on it. Okay, let's move on to question seven. Question number seven says, hey, Katie, I recently started seeing a therapist and I'm starting to develop a crush on him. Is this normal? Should I say something about it? Anyone else feel like their therapist holds back anything to you and or feels like they're just quitting therapy? I feel like my therapist holds back and doesn't confirm my terminology or tell me my diagnosis or if I'm just straight up too much or if I have too much trauma for her to deal with. Like how many years experience is required for a certain amount of trauma help? She's younger, but I do feel connected with her and I'm much older and have plenty of trauma to deal with on top of severe depression and high anxiety. We're saying she, but we say we crush on him. Doesn't matter. We'll talk about this. This is the second or third time that she's mentioned IOP therapy to me but I'm a full-time working mom of four. Like, how am I going to do that? I'm feeling really rejected by her now, which of course makes my depression worse. I've asked for a second session per week and she said she cannot support that. But do I just need a therapist that can support two sessions per week or is IOP really the way to go? Is it just every week I have something going on that I need to talk about? And we are trying to fit in EMDR. However, we haven't been able to work on any EMDR in about four months due to other stressors or deaths or chaos, et cetera. Going on that needs to, uh, oh, going on that needs to be talked about. I feel like I'm failing therapy, like the one thing no one can fail at, and I feel like I am. Am I having high emotional responses that aren't typical for a normal, stable person? Am I just too much to deal with? I'm afraid to go to IOP. I'm a very private person, and it was really hard for me to go to therapy at all in the first place. How much less is, oh, and much less going to IOP terrifies me. I've been going to my therapist for almost a year now, and I still have a pep, have to pep talk myself to tell her what is really going on in my brain, which most of the time causes panic attacks. But I remember your words, Katie, about sharing with my therapist, and I'm trying, but it's hard. Anyway, I sit here debating on going to IOP or just packing up my trauma boxes, duct, ta- duct taping them shut, and going back to shoving my feelings down again. You wouldn't have reached out to a therapist and done all this work if it wasn't uncomfortable to do just that. I would continue working on being mindful of myself and keep my emotions in check. I cannot help but feel like this would be better for everyone around me and I would stop feeling like I'm just too much. Sorry, this is so long, but it just weighs so heavy on me and hopefully it gets picked. It will help and it will help someone else too. Thank you, Katie, for all that you do. Okay, of course. Now let's, there's a lot to unpack. Now, when we have a crush on our therapist, the first question, that is called erotic transference and it's incredibly common. Essentially, erotic transference can happen for many reasons. Um, One of the biggest ones being that we have never really been shown love or affection or consistency or attunement, meaning that like they see us, they hear us. We've never experienced any of those things in any relationship. And we don't really know what uh, that kind of a relationship is. And so we take it as a crush because that's the only way we kind of know to make sense of it. Or also, a lot of my patients who've had sexual abuse in their past, especially when they were growing up, will feel that once someone gives them attention is is consistent and is holding space for them and they feel seen and heard, that they always think of that as sexualized because that's how they were when they were growing up. And so we don't really know, again, how to deal with it. And we automatically think that it must be a romantic interest. So there's that. Also, um, we cannot feel like like it's okay to have an attachment to our therapist. And so we do the one thing we feel fine with, which can be, oh, well, I don't really want to attach them, right? We can be maybe more avoidant or disorganized attachment. And we can be like, well, then it just must be this romantic. I have a crush on them. This must be this versus 
admitting that what what's really going on is that we feel attached to them like they're our parent and that's a little uncomfortable so i hope that that kind of explains it it's very normal you should say something about it i know it's incredibly uncomfortable but the best thing is to just mention like i know it probably has something to do and you can just say something to do with my attachment or the way i was raised or something about our relationship but i find myself having a crush on you and it feels really uncomfortable that's something that you should say because that opens up the conversation to dive into that what is causing that transference because transference and therapy is incredibly common and we just have to figure out where it's coming from it's actually a really good indicator like a little flag that's like whoop, here's the work we need to do so it's a really good uh indicator of where we should work together now moving on to the second component of this does anybody else feel like their therapist is holding anything back on you so therapists should let you know about your diagnoses or diagnosis. You said that they don't confirm your terminology. If I have a patient that uses a lot of terminology around their mental health and we haven't talked about it or they don't have a diagnosis, I will usually call it out. But every therapist is different, right? Because they might want to, you know, clear things up. Like I bring it up because I want to say something to the effect of like, hey, you know, I know you've said borderline, but you don't have borderline personality. You have like these two symptoms, you know, I had a patient that kept uh, talking about her depression um, as if it, I think she called it like a bummer, like I had a bummer mood or something. And I was like, can we call it what it is? You know, but not everybody, not every therapist is that way. So if this is something that's bothering you and you would like to know, ask your therapist directly. Again, clear communication, clear and direct communication is going to be important. And especially in therapy, it's a good place to practice it. We can't just expect your therapist to know that you're wanting them to either confirm your your terminology or diagnosis that you think, you know, we'll have to ask. And I think that that's really the best way to ensure we get the answers versus kind of passively hoping they do it. Again, no one can read our minds and expecting someone to read our minds is always going to set us up for failure and for upset. Okay. And you said, how many years experience is required for a certain amount of trauma help? It really depends on what you're working on and how how able you are to even stay present. Trauma work can take as long as it needs to take. Everyone's going to be different. I had a patient who needed like 15 sessions of EMDR, I think it was, and that improved them. They improved so much, but then they still had more work to do after, but that really helped get through the tough ones. But then I've had patients who did EMDR forever and it just wasn't helpful. We stopped it and went back to talk therapy. Or, you know, everybody's gonna be different. There's different styles of therapy for different people. So if one isn't working for you, we might wanna try another. Now, um, IOP can be incredibly helpful. If anybody doesn't know what IOP stands for, it stands for, stands for Intensive Outpatient Program, which means we still live at home. We still sleep in our own bed. We go almost like a full day of work. We go to treatment. And so I don't know how old because you said you're a full-time working mom of four. So maybe instead of working, we take some of that family leave where we can get paid leave for four weeks or so, whatever you can do. Um, in California, we call it the FMLA. It's like the family medical leave and assistance or something like that. Um, you can take a certain amount of it. A lot of my friends who had you know, just given birth and what took their 12 weeks added on the FMLA leave on top of that so they could stay home longer with their babies. So you can do that for this. It's always like that medical leave. You have a medical need for it. Your therapist is recommending it. They can write a little letter so you can get that leave. So I would encourage you to do that so that you can still get paid and you can still, then you can get the treatment that you need. Because IOP is much better than two sessions a week. IOP is sessions every day, like five days a week. I used to work in an IOP program and we operated six days a week. I did the Saturday, you know, I was obviously the new intern, so you always end up getting the shitty shifts. So I had to work like at 8 a.m. Saturday morning. It was rough, but I was like 24, so it was fine. Um, but anyway, that, you know, that Saturday shift, that can give you some extra support or you might not want the Saturday because you have children. So you might say, oh, I can do Monday through Friday, you know, 8 a.m. or whenever they open, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. You can just do it like you do work, but ask around and talk about it because it is a definite option, especially if we're needing more sessions and our therapist cannot accommodate. That will help you be 
get the support that you need, feel less reactive, feel like you have a better idea of, you know, how to work on things and to move forward. You'll be surprised how much more quickly things can move when we're we're getting like that much more support. You know, you're getting what 40 hours a week of support. It's pretty amazing. I would really encourage you to try that out. Okay. Final question. Question number eight says, hi, Katie. I was just wondering if it's possible to have PTSD from a home invasion or break-in. I talk with my therapist about this, but she never says that you can have PTSD from it. But when I told her that anytime I hear things that sound like they did that morning, it freaks me out. It makes me feel like it's happening again. And she tells me I'm having a flashback. Is it possible I'm just having flashbacks without PTSD? I hope this question makes sense. Thanks for all that you do. Of course, you can get PTSD from a home invasion or a break-in. Remember, PTSD means post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's after the trauma. Now, trauma, in order to be traumatized, some of us with who are traumatized will develop PTSD, others will not. But in order to be traumatized, we have to fear for our life or safety or the life and safety of someone else. I think a home invasion counts as that. Also, just even the feeling, I've had patients in the past who the house was broken into when they weren't there. And even just the invasion, someone in your space, and you feel like you might find them something, that in and of itself is traumatizing. So yes, you could develop PTSD as a result of this. It was scary. Somebody broke into your home. I'm so sorry this happened. And now you're on edge. You're having you're hypervigilant and you're having flashbacks. Sounds like we're developing some symptoms of PTSD. And so, yes, I feel like sometimes we assume that a trauma has to be this big thing or it has to, you know, look just like this. Trauma has a lot to do with our ability to weather a storm of something too. If it's too overwhelming, we don't have enough, uh, you know, coping skills, resilience built up to manage it. We become overwhelmed by it and we're swept away into the trauma space and we feel traumatized. So every person is going to be different when it comes to that. But I want you to know that, yes, you could develop PTSD from or as a result of a home invasion or a break-in. I'm glad you're okay. I hope nothing too was, you know, nothing too important was stolen. But yes, that's what's happening. Thank you all so much for sharing this video, for talking, telling friends about it, for sharing your comments and your questions. Thank you so much for your support. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time.